0: is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom, talking about freedom, that's what I want now. In part eight of this series in Galatians. As you know full well by now, this book called Galatians is all about freedom. Today, part nine, we're going to finish chapter four. We're going to get right through chapter four, and we're going to see a couple of things. The first thing we're going to see is that um, the gospel, if it's preached, if it's communicated clearly and Correctly and simply will always be attacked. So, if you say the gospel the right way, it will always receive attacks, and those attacks always come from within the church. They don't come outside the church, they come from within the church. Now, to be honest with you, as I prepared for this series back at Christmas time, I picked up three books. Um, the first book was uh, Timothy Keller's commentary on, on Galatians, and then I've mentioned Lots of quotes from Martin Luther from the 1500s. His commentary is the best commentary in the universe on this book. And I also picked up a book by a pastor in Florida. He's Billy Graham's grandson. His name is Tulian chevigian He pastors a Presbyterian church out there, and he wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And it's been very comforting to me as I've read those three books because... All three of them are saying this very thing, that the gospel is always attacked, if it's preached correctly, is always attacked from within the church. And that comforts me because I've experienced that myself. If you preach the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel, people will always attack that. They're afraid of freedom. They're afraid of the gospel. And so, um, Chavigian says in one of his books, he says, while attacks on morality will always come from outside the church... Attacks on grace will always come from inside the church, because somewhere along the way, we've come to believe that this whole thing is about behavioral, behavioral, oh my goodness, behavioral, behavioral. I can't say it tonight. You normally can say it. Behave your role. (laughs) We've come to believe that this whole thing is about behavioral (laughs) modification. (laughs) And personal moral improvement. We've concluded that grace just doesn't possess the teeth to scare us into changing. And so as a result, listen to this, we get a steady diet of do more, try harder sermons. We get a to-do list version of Christianity that causes us to believe that the focus of the Christian faith is the life of the Christian. So we end up hearing more about Christian living than about the Christ. Is that true? It is. And so um, today we're going to see that the gospel, if it's preached clearly, will always be attacked from within the church. We'll see that. Paul will be attacked, and we'll get to see how he responds to his attackers. And then the second thing we're going to see is that those attackers that I just mentioned that attack from within the church, they're always many, and they're always bigger, and they're always louder, and they're always meaner. You'll you'll see what I'm talking about. We'll see that as we finish up chapter 4 today, okay? Okay. You ready? Let's just dive in. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 12 and read all the way to verse 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, which is free, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ himself. for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And then he concludes, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am still perplexed about you. Interesting passage. Clearly, we see that Paul's being attacked. He's he's experiencing persecution for fighting for the, the free grace, truth of the gospel, And and if you remember, when he opened up this letter, he opened up very harshly towards the Galatians. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. He says, I'm astounded at you. Who has bewitched you? And now he's saying, I wish I could change my tone, but I'm still astounded at you. I still can't believe that you would hear the gospel message, the the grace alone, the free offer of salvation from Jesus Christ, and then turn from that and run into legalism and run into self-improvement methods. And so he, he, he kind of reflects back on a time when he first preached the gospel to them. You know, he planted that church. So he went there, and he preached the gospel to them. And when they heard the free salvation of Jesus Christ, good news gospel, they fell in love with Jesus. Amen? Who doesn't? You fall in love with Jesus when you realize he gives you everything, and all you have to give him is nothing. And then they fell in love with Jesus, but they also fell in love with the man who gave him that message, which was Paul. Paul says, you loved me. You, you, you treated me like I was an angel. You treated me like I was Christ himself. He even goes so far to say, if I needed an eyeball, you would have plucked out your eyeballs and give it to me. That's how much you loved me. But then he left that church to go plant other churches. And these other Christian men, people who you know, claim the name of Christ, came into that church and started saying, well, Paul's not, Paul's not right. Paul's wrong. Paul's preaching what I call easy believism or cheap grace. He's, he's preaching all you gotta do is believe, but these guys said, no, 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 you gotta also obey the law of Moses. You also gotta obey and, and change your lives. And so Paul's saying to them, have I now become your enemy because I'm preaching the truth to you? So these guys are telling you, you've got to work harder. I'm telling you, for the past four chapters, you don't. That's not, the, that's not the gospel. That's not good news. Am I now your enemy because I'm telling you that they're wrong and I'm teaching you the truth? So you see, Paul is essentially saying that when we take and add more to the gospel, Jesus plus something, it equals nothing, right? When we add something to the gospel, we are becoming enemies of the gospel, then Paul ends with this line. I want, I want to, I'm not going to talk about it tonight because we're just not going to have time, but we will pick back up on it. I want, to, I want us to focus, I want us to see it. He says, even now, even though I'm fighting for the truth, even though I'm fighting for the gospel for you, Galatians, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring over you like, like one who's giving birth to children. You're my children and I'm still giving birth to you because, did you see what he said? I'm doing it until Christ is formed in you. I think that's important. Like I said, we'll pick up on this later, but I I wanted to say this now. I think the the piece, the the key to this whole gospel versus works thing is that Christ is being formed in you. Not that you're trying harder and you're doing better and you're trying to figure these things out and do these things, but that you really have Jesus in you and he's being formed in you and you're in love with Jesus. Like I said, we'll, we'll come back to this. So here's what Paul's gonna do next. He's gonna launch into... His final argument, an allegory, and I want to just kind of recap what he's done so far because I'm going to be honest with you. I've been preaching on this stuff for, this is the ninth week, and I kind of feel like I'm saying the same thing every week, over and over and over and over again. And the truth of the matter, it's because Paul's been saying the same thing for the past three chapters. He's been building one argument, and he's been saying, or here's another way of saying it, or here's another way of saying it, or let me say it this way too. So he's building an argument upon an argument upon an argument, but it's all one argument. For instance, his first argument was that we died to the law. The law's dead to us, he says. That was in chapter 2. And then he started talking about how we got saved. Did you get saved by works or by faith? And then he asks, how did Abraham get saved, works or faith? And that's a trick question because um, the law hadn't even been invented yet, but he got saved by his faith. And then he started calling the law a prison. It's a prison that binds us in bars and slavery, and we can never do anything because we'll never, ever um, be good enough. And then last week he called it the, the the wicked schoolmaster who's whipping us and telling us we have will never pass we'll always fail. And then today I think this is his last coloring of that same argument. And I'm, I'm, I want just just listen to what he says because this is gonna you're gonna love this, Liz. Listen, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman. And one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free, and she is our mother. And I'm just gonna be honest with you. For the past three weeks, I have not, I've been dreading this day. Like, I don't want to preach on that. (laughs) What is going on? She's a mountain woman, she's got a Jerusalem in her hair, you know, maybe she's having a baby. We're children of the mountain woman. No, we're not children of the mountain woman. We're children of the the Jerusalem from above. I mean, what? The flesh, the spirit, the law, the the Sinai? What's going on? Are you guys scratching your head? Because I was until just a week ago. And I did not want to preach on this text. And I was really tempted just to skip right over and go right on to chapter five. And maybe this might be a good opportunity for me to tell you why I personally, as a pastor, believe in exegetical preaching, which means going through an entire book of the Bible, verse by verse, until you get to the end of it, no matter how long it takes. Because it forces me, and therefore you, to deal with things that you normally wouldn't deal with that you would normally would be just fine with jumping right on over it like this text here <laughs> so let me just tell you this i've been worried about this text for a couple of weeks until about tuesday and then i couldn't sleep i got so excited because i learned how phenomenal this illustration is. Paul is going to hit the nail right out of the park, if you will, with this illustration. I think that when we leave tonight, you're going to see how clearly Paul's trying to show us that the law and the gospel are unbelievably separated. You cannot bring them together. They must always be separated. And this allegory that he's going to use is going is to sink it in for us, I think. Okay, so I've come up with a couple of creative ways to to unpack this very heady, meaty, difficult text. Because Paul's talking about two different people, so I've got two people here. That's Sarah. Isn't she pretty? And this is Hagar. She's pretty too, okay? She's pretty too. And we're going to look at this text together. Before we do, I want to read this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians, and they say, if you sin, you will be punished with it, but it is not so. Listen to this. The law is under the Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide and his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace, and law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. Okay, you ready? First thing he says is that there's two people. One of them's name is Hagar, and the other one is called, anyone know? You guys can help me out on this. So you might know the story, but I'm just going to, I'm going to just... Paraphrase it real quick. Abraham came into the promised land. God promised Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they were about 85 years old, you're going to have a child. But Abraham and Sarah were very old, and she was barren. Can you imagine being barren, not able to have children, and 85 years old? That's many years of trying and not succeeding. And God says to her, you're going to have a child. So about 10 years go by. Again, you're a woman, you're barren you feel this anxiety, you want to have a child. God said you would. Ten years have gone by, more anxiety, right? So she goes to Abraham and says, maybe maybe what God meant was that you're supposed to have a baby. And so I have this slave woman. She's an Egyptian slave woman. She's probably a younger girl. Her name's Hagar. And why don't you sleep with her and then cause her to be pregnant. And then we can have a baby through her. So Abraham, honey, why don't you sleep with my Egyptian slave girl? And Abraham, like most guys, I think, say, oh, okay. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and, they, and they do some things. And nine months later, I think is the normal term, they have a baby. And they name that baby Ishmael. Okay, that's, that's Hagar's child. And then God shows up, the angel of the Lord shows up to Abraham and said, no, no. No, no, did you not listen? I told you that you and Sarah were going to have a baby. Why are you over here doing this? What what is this? You're supposed to have faith in the promise that I made you. That's you trying to figure it out. That's you trying to reverse engineer my my promise to you. Now you've got a problem. You've got a, a son that's not supposed to be there. And so God says, you are going to have a son. And then another 15 years go by. Ishmael becomes 15 years old before Sarah finally has a baby. And they name him Isaac. Now, the Bible also says that at that time, as Hagar has the baby, she starts looking at Sarah with contempt. She's the mistress. She's slept with her husband. She's having a baby with her husband. And she kind of wants to be the, the sister wife, if you know what I mean. She's, she's kind of bringing in some competition, and she's kind of shrugging her owner, which is Sarah, and saying, kinda, you know, I've got a son. You know, I've, I'm better than you are. And she gets frustrated about it, and she tells Abraham. And Abraham says, she's your slave. Do what you want. And so the Bible says she started treating her harshly, and she cast her away from the house. Well, then later on, Isaac and um, Ishmael grow up, and they start to have the same bickering and the same problems. You can imagine, right? Older son, firstborn of daddy, father Abraham, right? <laughs> Had many sons, and many sons, I'm the first one, la, 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 la. And, and, and Isaac is always fighting with him. So there's a, that's the story in a nutshell, okay? So Paul takes that story, it's found in Genesis 16, if you want to read it, and he says, Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. One is the covenant of law, that's Hagar. She's the covenant of law. And can you guess what Sarah is? The covenant of what? Faith. So she has faith, or supposed to, and she has... But why Why does Hagar... Why is Hagar called the covenant of the law? What, what did she do? Well, Paul says because she's Mount Sinai. Oh, she's a mountain woman. She's Mount Sinai. And what does that got to do with the law? Well, she's Egyptian. She's from Mount Sinai. And does anyone know what else happened on Mount Sinai? That's where we got the Ten Commandments. Much later, right? Like Abraham died way before Moses went onto the mountain of Sinai and brought down the Ten Commandments. But that is where we got, <laughs> that is where we got the Ten Commandments. So because Hagar is from Egypt, from Mount Sinai. Paul says she is Mount Sinai, and she represents the law because that's where the law came from in the Ten Commandments. Do you understand this so far? Okay, so now we've got it there. But Sarah, she is not from the law. She is from a promise. God made a promise to her. You're going to have a child even though you are barren. And so she's not from law. She's from promise. The next thing that Paul tells us in this text is that Hagar is also the slave woman. Did you see that? She is the slave. She is a slave. She's her slave, her hand slave. And so you've been studying this book called Galatians for the past eight weeks. You know that this is a huge theme in um, Paul's writing, right? Slavery. The law is slavery. And this woman who came from Mount Sinai who represents the law is a slave, just like the law is your slave. You don't want to be slaved to the law. But Sarah, obviously, is the wife of Abraham, and so she is the free Woman, You could say, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, she's the bride, right? She's the bride of Abraham, and so she's free, and Hagar is a slave. Okay, a little bit more. Because she's a slave, she is going to have children that are slaves. All her children are going to be under the, 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 the law and under slavery, so she's going to have children that are slaves. Anyone who comes from her will have children that are slavery. The other thing that Paul tells us about her is that she's from the flesh. I don't know if you picked up that when I was reading that text earlier. She's from the flesh. What does this mean? Let me put it up here so you can see it really big flesh. She's from the flesh. Why is that? Because, listen to this, Abraham was promised by God you're going to have a son. But They couldn't have a child. They were as good as dead. She was barren. There was no life inside of them. There was no way they're going to have a child. So what did they do? They reverse engineered the promise of God and said, hmm, maybe we can figure it out. He's not working in our timing. He's not doing it quick enough. So let's sleep with this girl over here. And bada bing, bada boom, flesh things happen. And when flesh things happen, they happen according to the flesh. This is um, self-effort, self-improvement. We made it happen. She had a baby based on flesh. Sarah, on the other hand, could only have a baby based on faith. Why? Because she's barren, and she's been barren for 80-something-odd years. And he's old. He's 90 years old. There's no way they're going to have a baby. And so the only way they're going to have a baby is through a miracle. And the only way you can have a miracle is if you have faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? She can't say, let me try harder. Uh, Let me do better. (laughs) And then I'm going to pop a baby out. She has to say, I'm just going to have to have faith. That God said he was going to give us a son, and I have no idea how because I'm 89 years old, dead, womb, never had a baby. It's faith. It's faith alone. Do You see that? Okay. Here's what's interesting. I might as well say this now. We're preaching here about the gospel being attacked from the inside, and it always is. And one way that I often see it attacked is um, legalistic people will say something like this. Well, yeah, we believe in the faith alone, grace alone. Christ alone, gospel. Obviously, we have to. The Bible says that, right? But what they'll do is they'll redefine the word faith. Have you seen this happen before? They'll redefine the word faith to mean something that is virtually impossible for any of us to ever do. I'll give you an example. Here's the example that I always hear in sermons, and I hate this example. I'll just tell you, this example drives me crazy. All my life, I've sat in sermons, and I've heard pastors use this illustration, and it drives me nuts. Here's the illustration. You probably heard it. There's a man. He's a tightrope walker. And he's got a tightrope all the way across Niagara Falls. You guys heard this illustration yet? No? Okay, well, I'm just going to ruin you by telling it to you. Maybe I shouldn't. No, because I want you to hear it, because I want you to know why it's wrong. There's a tightrope running across Niagara Falls. And he walks across the tightrope, and he comes back. And when he gets back, everyone goes, hooray! And he's like, yes, yes, yes. Do you think I can do it again? Yes. And he does it again. (laughs) And he comes on back. Hooray! He did it again. he's like, how many of you think I can do it with a wheelbarrow? Okay, sure. And he gets in the wheelbarrow. He goes across. (laughs) Hooray! He's like, how many of you think I can do it with the chicken inside of the wheelbarrow? Sure, yeah, I'll do it. So he puts a chicken in the wheelbarrow, walks across the line, comes on back. Hooray! And then he asks, how many of you think I can do it with a man inside the wheelbarrow? Everyone's like, yeah, you can do it with a man. He's like, okay, who wants to get in? And what I've heard a million times in my life is that teacher will say, true faith will get in. If you have real faith, you'll get into that wheelbarrow. And I, I was was youth pastor once. We had a guest speaker. We paid him. He came in and preached that sermon. And I was like, No, that is not true faith because I am. There's no way I'm getting in that wheelbarrow. But there's all kinds of factors that would cause this guy to fall down, right? A bird could poop on the, bur- you know, the chicken. The chicken, could, you know, there's all kinds of things that could happen. And it's, that's not what faith is. Faith is not yes. Let me prove. Do you hear how that illustration messes up faith? It says true faith means you will step into the wheelbarrow. True faith means you'll jump off the cliff and trust God. And that's ridiculous because that's not what I see in Scripture. Is that what you see in Scripture? Here's, here, here's, a, here's an illustration. How many times does the Bible say that Abraham had faith and it was a credit to him as righteousness? A lot, right? Not only that, but Paul and the author of Hebrews uses that faith as an example of what our faith should look like. But do you see what his faith has just done? It was very fleshly, wasn't it? He, he kinda, his faith that was accredited to him as righteousness kind of was kind of getting impatient with God's timing. You know what, God? You said you would give me a son, but you didn't, so I'm going to try to figure this out myself. I'm going to work it out through my own flesh. And then he messed up. If I could add more to the story, he had Ishmael at like 90, and then... He didn't have Isaac until 15 years later, and some, somewhere between those two times, he and his wife are on a journey, and he ends up pimping his wife out to a king because he's afraid that he's going to kill her, him, because she's pretty. And so he says, oh, you can have her. She's my sister. Now, how in the world are they supposed to be making babies if she's living in the castle and he's sleeping in a tent? They can't. Again, he didn't have faith. He did, and, and the Bible says that was a bad choice. He was not exhibiting faith. The point I'm trying to make is that even the great saints in the Bible, they don't exhibit the kind of faith that says, I'm going to step into the wheelbarrow. Look at me. I have faith. They exhibit more like, I have faith. Lord, please help my unbelief. See, faith is not confidence. It's not a force that we have to grunt to have. Mmm, let me have more faith. Mm. I like the way Timothy Keller, he illustrates faith. He does it much better. I think you've heard me say it before. Faith looks more like this, less like getting into the wheelbarrow, less like sitting on the chair because I believe the chair could hold my weight. It looks more like this. You're running along the side of an edge for for some reason, and you fall down a cliff. And as you're falling, you reach out to grab anything that can save you. And you grab a twig. And Oh, thank you, Lord. And you're holding on to that twig. Keller says, that's faith. You don't have confidence in that twig, really. You don't have confidence in that twig. You have no idea how long that twig is going to last, but you're holding on to it nevertheless. That is what true faith looks like. It's not confidence. It's not a force. You don't have faith in your faith. You have faith in God's promises. And so I want to just go ahead and take this box off of faith and say, you don't define faith in a way that's impossible for people to do it because the Bible shows us a lot of people with faith who don't have perfect faith. Moses, God's right-hand man, he did not have perfect faith. He often took things into his own hands. Remember? One time he took a man in his hands and killed him. That's what happens when you put things in your own hands. You make mistakes. David, man after God's own heart, who gets called that? Just David. And he often takes things into his own hands, and he makes big mistakes. And so all of the saints of the Bible, they have faith, and it's credited to them as righteousness. But that faith is not a perfect kind of faith that says, look at me, I can get into the wheelbarrow. I'm so so confident. Okay? Hagar has children, all the children that come from flesh, that come from working it out yourself, come from reverse engineering it. They're all going to be children of flesh, children of slavery but sarah has children of faith and paul says in that passage we just read that we are her children she's our our mother so we're not children of slaves we're children of faith amen we are children of faith or you could say children of of promise god is still making us a promise that he will save us that we will be saved we don't know we don't know what's on the other side (laughs) we don't know how hot that place is or if that place is there we just know that it must be true and that God promises us he's going to save us. Is that true? We're children of faith, children of a promise. Here's what's interesting, though. Hagar is the mistress. She's a mistress, and she wants to stick around. You know what I mean? She's like, well, I have a baby with Abraham. He's my, he's my, baby's, he's my baby daddy. And and so I just want—I want to stick around here. I I want to be the sister wife. I want to be in the room. You know, we can kind of—I know I'm not the true wife, but we can—you know—we can still mix and mingle a little bit. And so the law always wants to get mixed in and mingle in with grace. But what does Sarah say? You can't. No, you can't be mingling in with my man. And so the Bible specifically says that she's harsh to her and she casts her out of the house. She's got to get on out the door, okay? Because you cannot have a mistress in your home. Is that true? You don't even know (laughs) because how many of us have mistresses living in our house these days? But you can't have it. So Paul is saying that the mistress is always wanting to get back in the door, always wanting, to, always wanting to mingle in with this house over here. And this house over here is grace. It is faith. It is grace alone, faith alone. Don't be mixing in over here. No, we got to push you out. Listen to the way Spurgeon says it. He says, yet it is very remarkable that coarse and ill-featured as Hagar is, And he's talking about the law, not about Hagar. He's talking about she's coarse and ill-featured. The law is. The law is coarse, and it's ill-featured. It makes us do things we don't want to do. As coarse and ill-featured as Hagar is, men have always a greater love for her than they have for Sarah. They're prone continually to be craving, crying out, Hagar, thou shalt be my mistress, instead of saying, No, Sarah, I will be thy son, and Hagar shall be a slave. What is God's law now? It is not above a Christian, it is under a Christian. So we cast the mistress out and we have nothing to do with her. She's not allowed to come over here to grace. So law is as far away from grace as you can imagine. Do you see that? Okay, so if we were going to, to, to tell this story a little bit more, if, if Sarah and um, Hagar represent two covenants, then their children, which is, does anyone know their names? Um, Ishmael and Isaac will represent two people or two men living underneath those covenants. Do you see, can you see that? So Hagar represents the law, and she has a son named Ishmael. So Ishmael is going to represent a person, a human being, who lives under the law. So let's just take this illustration and the story in Genesis a little further and see what would happen if you're an Ishmaelite, meaning you're someone who lives in slavery. Under the law, or if you're an Isaacan, <laughs> Isaacite, and you're someone who lives under faith or the promise, what does it look like? Well, the first thing that we know about Ishmael is he's older, right? He's considerably older, like 15 years older. So if Ishmael's is older, that means Isaac is younger. <laughs> See, this is not so complex. (laughs) What happens when you're older? I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, legalism is older. It's always been around in this world. In last week's message, Paul says, it's the elementary principles of the world. It's just the way the world runs. It's self-improvement. It's do-it-yourself. We're naturally do-it-yourselfers. Luther says, um, we are all born legalists, essentially. It is grace that comes later that sets us free from legalism. It's grace that comes later that changes us from the child under the law to a child under grace. That's good news. Well, because he's older, he's also here and here this is important. he's bigger, and he's smarter, and he's louder, and he's meaner, really? You can imagine um, a 15-year-old boy. He's not really the true son. He's more like a a half son. How mean he is going to be to the younger son, who's 15 years younger than him, who actually is the heir of all his daddy's promised land. And can you imagine that? So that means that Isaac must be weaker and passive. He's never going to win the fight. Never. Um, Ishmael bullies him. All he can do is run to mommy and say, Ishmael, hit me. And so he's going to be very passive. And he's also peaceful. Okay, so what does this, how does this interpret to us? Um, Remember, I mentioned before that those legalists um, are always on the inside of the church, and they're always condemning the gospel. You preach the free grace gospel, and they're the ones who get mad. And so they're always bigger, they're always smarter, they're always louder, and they're always meaner. They actually are smarter. They always use the Bible Right? To, to tell you, doesn't the Bible say? Doesn't the Bible say that you're supposed to try harder and do better and be gooder? Do, doesn't the verse over here say something like we have to work it out with fear and trembling? You know, like what is, and they, they use these verses and then we're kind of like, uh, yeah, but then it also says, simply believe and call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. So how do you, and they're always using the Bible in a sense to beat up us grace folks, us faith folks. Spurgeon says it like this. The Ishmaelites, or he's talking about the legalists, are generally the strongest, and they can give us desperate falls when we get into arguments with them. In fact, it is their boast and glory that the Isaacs, or those who talk about faith and grace alone, have not much power of reasoning, not much logic. No, Isaac does not want it, for he is an heir according to the promise, and the promise and logic do not go together. They're they're not consistent together. His logic is his faith. So never expect the gospel to be victorious when you are disputing after the manner of men. More usually look to be beaten. If you are discoursing with a legalist and he conquers you, then you can say, ah, I expected that. It just shows that I'm an Isaac, for Ishmael would be sure to give Isaac a thrashing, and I'm not at all sorry for that. You see that? Can I just tell you this? I've been reading Keller, been reading Luther, been reading a few other modern-day writers, and been preaching a lot of quotes. You've heard a lot of quotes, right? And all those quotes are like, the law is cast away. It's over here. It's grace alone, faith alone. And doesn't that sound just a little unique to our ears? We want to say, something's wrong with that. Something doesn't sound, I've never heard that before. This sounds new. And I'll be honest with you. I even start to get a little afraid. Wait a minute, am I, am I misreading Luther and Keller and all the other authors I'm reading? Maybe I am because I'm. This is if you push this too far, you kind of are going to get into some trouble. It feels that way, and then so I, if you know me, I like to read Spurgeon. I've, I read him a lot, but I haven't read him in eight weeks because <laughs> I've been so consumed with Luther. And so this week, because this text was so creeping me out, I thought, why don't I pick up some Spurgeon again? And so I, Spurgeon has a sermon on this text. So I downloaded it, and I read it, and I got about a third of the way through, and I'm like, this is cool. This is interesting. And then I got about halfway through, and I'm like, ooh, stop. I got to go back and read this again and start taking some notes, and it was really, really good. So it's been really encouraging to say, okay, see, I'm not crazy. Luther's not crazy. <laughs> Spurgeon isn't crazy. Uh, you know, Keller's not, and even Spurgeon, you know, they, they all agree with each other. So, so he is telling us that the law is so far away from grace. These bigger, smarter, louder, meaner people are always the ones who get mad when we preach the simplicity of the gospel. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? The Bible says that Ishmael was a wild man, that's what the Bible says in the Old Testament, and that his hand was against every man. His hand was against every man, and that every man's hand was against him, okay? So this means that they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it when you take their teeth of the law away and say it's grace alone. You know, you know what Ishmael does to, to, to Isaac? He mocks him. In the Bible, in the story, he's always mocking Isaac. And Isaac is mocked, and he's unpopular. And this is the case today, I think, with, the, with what we've been talking about in this series, which is the legalists, that message seems to be very popular, the to-do list, the checklist, the try harder, do better, be gooder message is so popular. Everyone's saying that. I've not, not heard that message in most of my life. But the, it's, all, it's all about grace. It's all about God's love for you. It's all about freedom. That's a very unpopular message. In fact, in the next verse that I didn't read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27, Paul brings in this Old Testament passage. It's a strange passage, too. Let me read it. It says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This is a strange verse in Isaiah. He's saying, rejoice, you who can't have children. Be happy about that because the children of the desolate woman, the children of, the, the children of this woman will have more. There's going to be always going to be more of them. More people who want to follow the law. More people who want the mistress of Hagar. Less people who are just not trusting in their flesh, not reverse engineering the promises of God, just trusting in God. You know, the Bible tends to talk about this narrow path. Why is it every time you hear that passage, you immediately think, oh, I better try harder then. (laughs) I better do better so I can get on that narrow path. I really do think the narrow path are those people who put their trust in Christ alone, not reverse engineering the flesh. Amen? Okay. I know what Dan was thinking earlier. He was thinking, wait a minute. If Isaac represents faith and promise and gospel, how could we call it weaker? I mean... Isn't it true that there's power in the gospel? It's the power of the gospel that changes lives. Why do we call it weaker? If he's the stronger and he's the bigger and he's the faster and he's the smarter, why is the gospel weak? You might remember that Paul calls the gospel foolishness to men. It is weaker. There's a thing that scholars like to do. Um, Talk about God's right hand. God has a right hand of justice. And what does he do with his right arm? (laughs) He crushes us. You, you are breaking my law. My right arm of justice will poof, crush you. Flood the whole earth because your sin and your iniquity makes me sick. Poof. And that's what the legalists always want, right? Justice. Bring in the, 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 the right hand of God right here. Let's just do some crushing. Even when Jesus came, the disciples were kind of that way. They were like, when are you going to bring your kingdom? When are you going to kill these fools and set up shop? Peter even says, hey, hey, Lord, you want me to call fire down from heaven? And let's wipe them all out and let's, do, let's crush them. Even if you, I've been reading this book on the, the, the parables this week. And, and he was saying, it's so funny because when you read the parables, you and I, we always get excited. The last line in the parable, which is, and then God destroys them all. And those weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we, we love to rush to that one line. But the rest of the, the, rest of the parable is typically Jesus showing us his left hand and his left hand is more passive and more gracious and merciful come to me all you who are weary and i'll give you rest i want you to forgive your enemies i want you to love your, i want you to pray for your enemies i'm going to be long the bible calls it the long arm of the lord it's his left hand And so the right hand of the legalists and the justice and the the law folks always want to crush you with the law. And the left hand of Jesus is, even though it's weaker, it's less powerful, it's actually more strong, isn't it? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, goodness, that is what changed you. That is what came inside of your heart and said, I want to be saved. It's because of God's mercy and God's love. It's just a phenomenal thing when you think about it. Well, moving on. Paul says that this child is born of the flesh, and he's natural. So if you're born of the flesh, then you're a natural man. Paul has a lot to say about the natural man in Romans. The natural man is always wanting to do stuff out of his flesh. Reverse engineering the promises of God and making it happen yourself. It's the, it's the lows or the... Home Depot motto, you can do it. Jesus is going to give you a helping hand, right? You can do this. Make it, make it work. But Isaac, um, Paul says, is born of the promise or born of the spirit. Now, this is a spiritual thing. You don't have babies um, whenever you're barren unless you have a miracle in your life. And so this is a spiritual thing that's happening. So we've got born of the flesh, natural. Born of the spirit, spiritual. You know what Jesus said? He says, that which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. Do you see how these are completely opposite of each other? You can't have the two together. Either you're born of the flesh or you're born of the spirit. The disciples say, what are you talking about? And he says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Paul is pushing these two things further and further and further and further apart for us. Do you see it? I just think it's phenomenal. Here's where it might come home for you. Ishmael, because he's the son of a slave girl, even though Abraham's his daddy, He's always insecure about the fact that his mommy's a slave and that he's a slave, essentially. So he's going to respond to his father as a master. Abraham says, son, and that is music to his ears, isn't it? He called me son. I need you to do something for me. Yes, sir. He jumps up. He wants to prove himself. I can do it. I can do it better than your real son, Isaac. I can can show you that I got the goods. What do you want me to do, daddy? What do you want me to do? I'll do it. He's always responding to his father as a master. Isaac, on the other hand, who is the true son, the son that was promised to him by God, the son of promise that will receive all of the good good graces that God has promised him, he, he thinks and responds to his father as a son. Isaac calls his daddy Abba. Ishmael calls his daddy Sir. I think this might help us. The, the, the difference between law and grace is kind of the way we respond to God in it. Um, if we think that we have to read our Bibles, reading our Bibles is good. We should read our Bibles. If we want Christ to be formed in us, we're going to have to read the Bible. <laughs> but sometimes we do it as a sir thing, right? Look at me, I'm reading my Bible. 6 a.m., i got a journal. I'm journaling too. See that, Lord? I don't think I've ever heard a pastor say this. And I hope I've never said it as a youth pastor, although I got really close many times. Um, But we imply it all the time. And the implication is when you have your quiet time at 6 in the morning and you journal about it while you're listening to 99.1, God loves you and you're going to have a blessed day. And then the implication flip side of that is if you skip your quiet time and you listen to country music (laughs) on the way to work, God's disappointed in you. And you're probably going to have a bad day. Raise, raise your hand if that's kind of you've heard, not heard that said, but it seems to be implied all the time. And so we sometimes respond to God as our master who's looking at us saying, are you doing it right? Are you trying hard enough? Are you, are you being thankful? And the difference is that the gospel and grace as we respond to our father as Abba, as dad, We know that he loves us, and we love him. And we're like, Dad, I love you. And I I, I know that I don't have to do anything to change your love for me, but I love you so much I want to serve you. I want to honor you. I want to respect you. It's a big difference, a huge difference. And unfortunately, I believe the church has pushed this one, rather intentionally or unintentionally, rather than that one. And then the last thing to say about these two boys is the same that we said about Hagar. Ishmael had to get sent away. There's a scene, I think it's in chapter 19 of Genesis, um, where God literally comes to Abraham and says, Ishmael's got to go. This boy can't be staying around Isaac. He's kind of bullying him. He's, he's um, competing with him. He, he wants, his flesh is too strong. We got to send him away. So God says, I'll bless him. He'll be a different nation. I'm going to send Ishmael and Hagar away. But Isaac needs to stay in your house and you need to teach him about faith and teach him about trusting in, in, in God. And so again, we see that These two things have to be completely set asunder. Do you you, you see what Paul's trying to do? He is beating this horse silly. It's dead, and he's still beating it. He wants you to see. You cannot mix law and grace. They are completely diametrical from one another. Charles Spurgeon says, There cannot be a greater difference in the world between two things than there is between law and grace. You hear that? There cannot be a greater difference in the world between two things than there is between law and grace. And yet, strange to say, while the things are diametrically opposed and essentially different from each other, the human mind is so depraved and the intellect, even when we've been blessed by the Holy Spirit, has become so tuned aside from right judgment that one of the most difficult things in the world is to discriminate properly between law and grace. They're so separate, but yet our minds are so depraved that it's so difficult for us to see the difference. We always want to mix them. We always want to mingle them. So he goes on to say, there's always a tendency in us to confound the two things. They are as opposite as light and darkness and can no more agree than fire and water. Yet man will be perpetually striving to make a compound of them. They seek to blend the two when God has positively put them asunder. This is freedom. Do you see, do you feel, do you sense the freedom in this? The law is far away from the gospel. And those men who say, yeah, but you got to try harder. Yeah, but you got to do gooder." They're just acting like Ishmael. And Paul's saying, but we are not children of the mountain lady. We are children of the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem in heaven, the the covenant of faith and grace, the left-handed covenant, not the right-handed so I want to conclude. I want to close. I want to close by well, bringing up that verse I read earlier, and that strange verse in Galatians, chapter four, verse twenty-seven, where he's quoting Isaiah about the barren woman. You see, what's happening here is that the Bible says all in Hebrews and in Romans and all throughout the Old Testament that Abraham was as good as dead. Did you you've heard that before? Abraham was as good as dead, which means there, there is no life in his loins. He's not producing life. Sarah, likewise, was barren. There's no life in her. My favorite person in the world, Rich Mullen, says they were on the verge of extinction. (laughs) As soon as they died, there's no lineage. There's no line. But God had to get them to the edge of death in order to give them the promise of life. It's the same with you and I. We, We have to get to the place of death before we can have Life. The Bible says once we get to that place of death and, 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 we have, and we have Christ, we get life. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is dead. The old has passed away and the new has come. That's what the gospel really is bringing us to a point of death to self, self effort, self figuring it out, self improvement. You've just got to die to self and have faith alone in Christ. Then you'll receive life. Tevijian says, Christian birth is not the renovation of you, it is the death of you. Do you see that? So, don't try harder. Die. Don't try harder. Just die to yourself. And then trust in Jesus. And then Christ will be formed in you and the new creation. Life comes after death, not the other way around. Amen? So here's this verse in Galatians, it's strange that Paul quoted this verse in the middle of this argument. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Why would anyone rejoice about this this death? The womb is dead. It's not producing any life. So he says, rejoice. Stand up and sing and cry aloud, you who cannot have children, because you're dead, you're extinct. As soon as you die, it's over. Why would Paul say, or Isaiah, say, let's rejoice in death. Well, I don't know why, but it's what we're about to do right now, actually. We're about to stand up and sing and rejoice in death. We're going to rejoice in the death of Christ. We're going to take the bread and share that one loaf together, which symbolizes his broken body and his death. And we're going to take the cup, the one cup together, and which symbolizes the blood that he spilt for us so that we might have life, so that our old could be passed away and die with him, that we can die to self and die with Christ and be resurrected with him in new life. Amen.